Pastor Corey here with Heights Church. Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast. If you would like more information about Heights Church, simply go to weareheights.org or follow us on our Facebook page. If you're looking to get plugged into a church, feel free to reach out to us via our website by simply clicking contact, and we will help you find a similar church in your area. Hope the podcast serves you well, and thanks for tuning in. morning church excited to be here with you my name is Corey I'm one of the pastors on staff Good to be your teaching pastor uh, for today I, I joked in the first service that Aaron was uh, so embarrassed to be on screen that she decided she volunteered to serve in kids today she didn't want to be in here uh, and have you all watch I asked her three times this week you want to see the video and she's like no I don't want to see the video she did an incredible job uh, speaking of mom uh, Aaron's a mom and and I want to say happy Mother's Day as Pastor David said and uh, but just specifically from me uh, to you, there's a lot of moms in this room that have mommed me and have re-parented uh, me. If you, don't, if you know my story, you know I, have a bit of a, uh, I had a bit of a rough childhood and upbringing, and the Lord has genuinely redeemed uh, large aspects of my personal life through many of the women that exist in this room. So thank you for, for loving me well. And then as David said, we'll reiterate again that, uh, man, there are healthy moms, healthy relationships. There's also really hard and... Um, and, and relationships have a great deal of tension. We have 20-plus families that foster within our church body as a whole, so we have foster moms in the room, foster adoptive moms in the room, women who mom people like me, women who are experiencing uh, infertility. I mean, there's all across the board. And so in that, uh, just kind of one overarching thought is, I mean, if you had an incredible relationship with your mother, just be thankful that the Lord allowed redemption to happen in that way. And simultaneously, if you come from a place that's difficult, uh, just be mindful of how of how that difficulty exposes the need for redemption. It exposes the need for Jesus. And so all that to say, happy Mother's Day, ladies. As David said, we would literally not be here without you. So thank you for all your hard work. Uh, with all that in mind, um, we are in this capital campaign. I want to hit something. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to address this right here a couple times throughout the sermon, which is a little different, but it's because the season that we're in. And so if you're new to Heights, this is, a, this is what we call like a family conversation. If you've been here for four weeks, five weeks, and uh, you kind of, you know, you put a ring on it, but you're not all the way stepped in on that thing, like, uh, we welcome you, and this can be part, of, you can be part of the family, as, that, as far as that goes. Uh, but if you're brand new to Heights, this is what we call just a family conversation. You're in a season of church, you're stepping into our season, which is incredible what God is allowing. And so in order for us, in order for us to better prepare, we've been in a capital campaign uh, series. And so with that in mind, uh, there's a decision guide and a vision packet that we've passed out to you each week. It's been available. If you've not yet grabbed the decision guide, I want to encourage you this week to do that. We start collecting the pledges next week, and then the following week is the last week that we'll uh, kind of formally collect those pledges and then announce what that uh, dollar amount is. And so I want you to take this vision guide, uh, this decision guide serious. Uh, we put the work in, uh, we've prayed over it. We've spent months literally working on it. And, and part of it is to help us inc- raise the capital, of course. It's a capital campaign. But there's another aspect of it that I've, I talked about a few weeks ago where the hope isn't just to raise money. It's about maturity in the body. And if you set in that decision guide, it has been designed to do the work. And so it's going to lead you to scriptures. It's going to lead you to prayers. It's going to lead you to consider your budget. And so check it out. If you're a Christian in the room, this might be the first time that you've sat alone or you've sat as a couple and actually prayed together. 
It might be the first time that guide might lead you to the first time that you've actually sat and read scripture together as a family. It might be the first time that you get to set and you actually look at a budget instead of saying, well, we have a budget, but he manages it or she manages it. That's, we're going to get to that. I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. It's a little irresponsible of you, by the way. Yeah, and we're going to get there and hinder it. And so, but this might be the first time. So it's not just about raising money, okay? It's about presenting you mature in Christ. Are you tracking with me on that? We're good? Okay, so family conversation. It won't all be this heavy and direct, but the most of it, uh, it will be. And so um, with that in mind, we have four identities that we have as a church body that we like to talk about. Family, story-formed, hospitable, and missionally strategic. These are the measures that we have at Heights Community. So the way that we measure, quote, success as a church body is not through budgets and how many butts are in seats. Like we don't, that's important things, but we don't look and say, oh, we have X amount of money, so we must, be, we must be successful, or we have X amount of people coming, so then we must be successful. Like any bloke can get up and raise up a big mega church. They can just tell you things you want to hear, you invite your friends, that church blows up. That's pretty easy to do in America, based, especially off what Jess just told us. On that you do you culture, if I got up and just said, hey, man, you, you do you, you make yourself feel good. People would be like, dang, this pastor tells me everything I want to hear about myself. You should come see. We don't do that. We preach the gospel to the family. So these are the four measures. And so this is what, over the course of six months to a year, we want you to grow in if you're going to call Heights home. We want you to look more like family, to understand what it means to come under Jesus's authority and headship over your family. What does it look like to be brothers and sisters in Christ. Like, what does it mean to be family? I want you to grow in that understanding. I want you to grow in being story formed. Like, we preach the gospel week in and week out. We most certainly do not tell you things you want to hear about yourself unless you come wanting to hear about the gospel. Then we hit you with that every week. But just like, think about Paul last week, if you were here. He said to Corinth, he said, I want you to give to this mission, but I want you to give because Jesus gave everything. He became he was rich. He became poor so that you might become rich. Now respond to that. That's what it means to be story formed. It's where you filter everything through the gospel. So the first week of the capital campaign, we hit family. The second week of the capital campaign, we hit story formed. That was last week. This week is hospitable. And next week is Pastor David is going to bring it on. What does it mean to be missionally strategic? And so as we're entering into this sermon series, again, it's not just about money. It's about maturity. How do we grow together and step up to the plate and be a family of story-formed, hospitable, missionally strategic folks, uh, man, that are just storming the gates in the San Luis Metro East. Today, hospitality. You tracking? Good? A lot of info for you. Aaron crushed it in the video. We had a great conversation this week, which led uh, to a big idea Aaron and I did. And big idea is this. I give it to you every week. If you're new, you're going to get a big idea and you're going to get some points. Big idea is entertainment is what I can provide for you. But hospitality is about what has been provided for me. Entertainment is what I can provide for you. Hospitality is what has been provided for me. So the whole reason Erin did this video that she did is because we were setting together during staff and after our staff meeting, and she was kind of talking about um, what does it mean to be hospitable and talking about entertainment. And then we ended up meeting together and talking about it. And I said, man, these are the moments I want to capture on video. And then I was like, oh, dang, we can do that. So we captured it on video and then shared it with you, because when we're talking about, like, what is the purpose of the new building? Is it just to have a big building? Is it just to invite more people? Is it just to have a bigger platform to be able to preach from? And at the end of the day, it's not. It's about being hospitable. All of those things in and of themselves is about entertainment, right? If, and think about it, like entertaining. If I'm going to invite you into my house 
and I want you to see my stuff and experience my money and my time and my goods and my charcuterie board or whatever you all call it. That's about me, right? That's my, inter- I'm entertaining you. I want you to leave. And I want you to think, man, Corey was so great. Andrea, my wife, was so great. It was such a fun experience. Their open concept was great, right? Like, that's entertainment. But hospitality is about, no, 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 this is not my house. This is the king's house. This is not my money. This is the king's money. This is not my time. God has put breath in my lungs. Look at what he has given me, and then I invite you in to see not what I can provide for you, but what the king has provided for me, now through me to you. Does that make sense? It's a different approach, right? So if you're a high entertainer in the room, hopefully this is challenging you to question, why do I do such a great job? Why do people want to experience me? Some of the things we talked about is that a true measure of hospitality is not your ability to bring someone into your home, but rather do people who don't think like you, have the same faith as you, same religion as you, do they invite you into their home? That might actually be a better taste of how hospitable you are. Do outsiders invite you into their life? And so whenever you think about this, entertainment versus hospitality, there is a difference. One says, look at me, and the other one says, no, 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 look to Jesus. There's three ways that we're going to kind of flush out this big idea. Here it is, three points for you. If you're online, thanks for tuning in. A heart of hospitality is going to be point number one. It's going to have two sub points underneath it, which I don't normally do, but getting crazy up here. Second is the hindrance to hospitality. The hindrance to hospitality, just one sub-point. And then the honor found within, the honor within hospitality. All right, sound good? We're going to start with the heart of hospitality. We'll read the text, and then we'll look at second, uh, verse 8 and come back to 9. So 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 9. If you're ready, say ready. All right, I'm going to need some help. Verse 9, he says, Paul says, the Apostle Paul, Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. For I know your readiness, of which I boast, and about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since the last year. So two times in there, Paul says there's this readiness. We're going to get there in a minute. Before we get there, let me back up. If you're new to Heights, or if you missed the last couple of weeks, we've been, we preached straight through books of the Bible. So this is chapter 9. Last week was chapter 8. In chapter 8, Paul comes and he says, he leads off with, the church of Corinth, I want you, Corinth, to look at this Macedonian church. This Macedonian church is poor, impoverished, they're being beaten, they're being persecuted, and yet they are continuing to raise money for another church that's experiencing that. It's the church in Jerusalem, also poor, also impoverished. Paul comes and he says, he says, Corinth, I want you to see what this church is doing in hopes that it would motivate them to give more generously. So he gives them a compelling what, but then he hits them more importantly with a compelling why. And in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, he says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, Corinth. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, Corinth, by his poverty might become rich. And so Paul doesn't just come and say, hey, give all this money to this church. He comes, he says, hey, give all this money to this church because It is what Jesus has first modeled for you. Listen, anyone who ever stands up and preaches and calls you to something should never call you to do anything that Jesus himself was not first willing to execute for you. You understand? So everything should come from the gospel. It should all flow from what Jesus has done to you. Like, that's how you respond for him. Here's what you've done to me. Now I'm going to go respond for you. Has anybody ever listened to TED Talks? You guys like TED Talks? 
Left side of the room? Left side of the room likes TED Talks and Doug. Cool. So you remember, you know Simon Sinek? You might know Simon Sinek and TED Talks? Left side, just me and Doug now. Okay. Simon Sinek does this incredible, <laughs> quickly weeded them out of there, didn't I? Uh, Simon Sinek does this incredible TED Talk where he says, if you give people a compelling why, they will figure out the what. You give them a compelling why, give anyone a compelling enough why, and they'll figure out how to get the job done. That's exactly what Paul has done. Paul has come with the what, and he said, hey, you gotta, we got to raise money for these people. They're literally dying. They're being burned alive at the stake. There's, they, they need our help. They need our aid. And then he says, not only should you respond because you're a decent human being, that would be legalism, that would just be religion if you stopped there. But he says, no, no, no. This is what Jesus modeled. He had a whole entire kingdom, and he let go of that whole kingdom to come and walk among hum- humans, frail humanity that he modeled for us, becoming poor, lost his riches on purpose so that you who are poor could actually become rich. That's a pretty compelling why, yeah? It's a compelling why for us. Now, because of the series that we're in, okay, all of our decisions have to be filtered also through that gospel lens, okay, as professing Christians in the room. We have to be thinking through the cross and thinking through the gospel. We call this gospel fluency. We talked about it last week. This is what Paul is inviting them to do. Here's the deal. Whenever we pass out to you a decision guide as a people, as part of a capital campaign, we do that to help you process through the gospel, right? In that guide, again, you're going to see prayers. You're going to see scripture. It's going to force you to look at your budget or lack therein a budget. And here's what I want you to do. In that moment, listen here, listen, eye contact. In that moment, when you're setting, looking at this decision guide, and you're feeling kind of the anxiety that comes from like, this was maybe what the Lord wants me to do. This is a, this pressure that comes. I want you in that moment to recall right now, and I want you to thank the Lord for that moment. And here's why. Because in that moment, whenever you're about to step into a series or season of sacrifice that you've not felt before, in that moment, like on the fringe of that moment, you can actually, maybe for the first time in your Christian walk, better understand what Jesus was willing to endure to save you. If you don't ever walk out a life of sacrifice, and you don't ever walk in, step into some form of suffering, how can you ever recall what it means for Jesus to be rich, to become poor, to make you rich, who was once poor? Like it's in that moment when you're really like having to wrestle with scripture and spend time in prayer. It's in that moment, dude. It's in that very moment that you can go, thank you, Lord. Like now I get it. Now I understand what you were willing, I, I mean, it's, it's a small, shallow understanding, but I get a glimpse of what you were willing to endure for me. That is what it looks like, right, for a compelling why to drive you to an incredible what. That is what Paul is inviting them to do. That's what we as the pastors of Heights Community are inviting our church body to do, to better engage and to better understand who Christ is and what Christ has done for you. Does that make sense? Within this point, first point, the heart of hospitality, within there's a sub-point, though. Paul says now, I've told the Macedonians about your readiness, that you've been ready from last year. And so the tables kind of turn a little bit. And what Paul is saying, again, you had to be here last week, he's talking to Corinth about the Macedonians. And now he switches it. And he says, by the way, Corinth, I've been talking to the Macedonians about you. And so he's been talking about both of them, building them both up. And he says, it's superfluous to me. I wonder which dead old white dude thought we should put superfluous in here. The word just means unnecessary. It was literally superfluous to use the word superfluous. Just challenge from the pastor this week. Just try to use the word superfluous. See how it goes, right? He, he's saying this. It's, it's unnecessary of me 
to write to you. It's, it's unnecessary because you've been ready. You've not only been ready like right now, you've been ready for a whole entire year. He said, I've been building you up. I've been boasting in your excitement about what is to come. It's been a year that you've been waiting on this. My gosh, this hit me last night. June 13 of last year is the, the date that we put in the first offer on that building. If you've been in our church, you know we got the building, lost the building, got the building, lost. Like, it was a, it was a mess. June 13th, on the way to a conference together to staff, I called a digital covenant member meeting. Do you remember? A year ago. We've been talking about this for a year, church. Let me ask, are you as ready as Corinth? It should come as no surprise, should it? For one year, we have been talking about this. I love this in light of readiness, because we do most certainly have a church that is uh, ready. I get the cool opportunity to go and, and, and teach at different things sometimes. And so I get to go next week and I get to preach at this conference to pastors out in Missouri. And, um, and when I go, I usually just tell, I preach the gospel, but then I tell a lot of stories about you. They usually ask me to come and talk on missional community. And one of the stories I'll get to tell this week is the story of your readiness. The way that you buy homes as Heights community is incredible. And if you don't know this about people that are in missional community, like I have regularly have had, to my knowledge that I know of, 28 families that have bought homes just so they can move closer to be in the San Luis Metro East and go to Heights Community. 28 families is incredible, probably more at this point. And the thing, the common theme or thread that I get to hear and have a conversation with about people goes like this. Man, that house was incredible. It looked great on the outside, but there wasn't any parking and so we couldn't host people at our home because we didn't have the parking. Any of you been in that position or said that thing before? Some of you in the room? Yeah. Or they'll say like, oh my gosh, Corey, it was our dream home. It looked incredible. But then we walked into the living room and there was just no place to put people. I didn't have anywhere to put people. We couldn't ever host. We could never host our missional community. We got like 12 adults and 53 kids. What do we do with all these kids? We don't have a place to put anyone, right? And this is like a common theme. It reveals readiness. Like that's a story I get to tell about the saints in the St. Louis Metro East that is of you. I can say they are ready. They have been ready. Listen, we're not doing anything different here as a church. Our living room is kind of full. Yeah, it's full. Our kid space is a small riot downstairs. It is insane down there, right? If you want to suffer for Christ, sign up to serving kids. <laughs> if you want to know, and then pray and thank the Lord in that moment of your suffering. This is what you did for me. Yes. It's a small, we don't have any parking, and yet somehow we have parking. We lost a parking spot that we borrowed. We have literally ran out of parking. Paul says, I know of your readiness. I've been boasting about you. Church, you have been ready with your personal resources. Do you have a kingdom readiness in light of the church? Heart of hospitality, first point underneath that is readiness to give. Second is then zealous to give, Miss Kelly. Next scripture. He says, and your zeal. Your zeal has stirred up most of them. And I love how real the scripture is because Paul doesn't come in like some prosperity pastor and he doesn't say, the more you give, the more people are going to respond. Give more, get more, give more, get more. Jesus, that nonsense is so heretical and unbiblical. Rather, the apostle Paul who writes Bible comes and he says, your zeal, your excitement, your unction, your passion has stirred up most of them. He's very aware here. He's saying like not everyone is on is on board. And yet the, the mission of God still must continue. He said last week, see that your readiness in the beginning is matched by your readiness at the end. And now this week, he say, see that your readiness, see that your zeal, like continue in that. And also it's stirring up the majority of the people, but not 
all the people. Man, a word from the pastor here, as I reflect on this, is this. Don't ever let someone steal your zeal. Like, don't let someone steal your zeal. And that's a genuine thing. If I had a, a dollar for every time somebody tried to slow me down, we could have paid for the capital campaign. Like for every time that someone has said to me, Corey, your expectations are too high, you're too fired up, you're too excited, you just need to slow down a little bit, don't come off so strong on people, you know, and there's all these different things that people say to me. But listen, I don't know how not to be excited. Like, do you not know what Jesus has done in my life? Do I need to share my story? How many more times do I need to share it? I came from nothing. I should be dead or in prison right now. And the good Lord saw fit to let me represent him? Come on, somebody. How do you not be pumped about that? Like, I am so pumped about that. I don't know how not to, like, here's what they're looking for in that moment. Mediocrity. That's it. Tell me how that translates when you go to invite your friend to church and you say, you know what? You should come meet my pastor. He's just really indifferent. <laughs> He's just so passive, you know? Like, we call him pastor, pastor passivity. He really enjoys that. You should meet him. You guys would get along great, by the way, right? How does that, that wouldn't work, right? There's nothing attractive about that, to have someone who's going to stand up and like herald the gospel that has lost unction, like lost. See, I don't know how not to do those things. Titus in 2.14 says this of Jesus who gave himself. He says, who gave himself? Someone of Jesus. Jesus who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are what? Zealous. Who are what? Have some unction when you say it, church, who are zealous for good works. It doesn't say who are indifferent about good works, who are passive about good works, who are licentious about his good works. No, it says who are zealous, who have this unction in them. If you don't feel the unction in the zeal, there's a gentleman named R.C. Ryle that is an old pastor who's long gone before us. This quote is going to straight blow your hair back. It says this. It's going to give you chills. He says this to his people. A zealous person in Christianity is preeminently a person of one thing. Here we go. It is not enough to say that they are earnest, strong, uncompromising, meticulous, wholehearted, and fervent in spirit. Anybody? They only see one thing. They care for one thing. They live for one thing. They are swallowed up in one thing, and that one thing is to please God, whether they live or whether they die. Here we go. Whether they are healthy or whether they are sick, whether they are rich or whether they are poor, whether they please man or whether they give offense. There's Corey. Whether they are thought wise or whether they are thought foolish, whether they are accused or whether they are praised, whether they get honor or whether they get shame. For all this, the zealous person cares nothing at all. They have a passion for one thing, and that one thing is to please God and to advance God's glory. If they are consumed in the very burning of their passion for God, they don't care. They are content. Ooh, amen. Gosh, that is what zeal looks like. Do you have a zeal in you, church, a purpose in you to see, to proclaim this one thing that is the glory of God above every other self-proclaimed glories in our culture, above every other entertainment in our culture. The heart of hospitality is ready to give, is zealous to give, because they've looked at a Jesus who hangs on the cross, who is ready and zealous to give. I don't know about you, when I read about the Jesus in the Bible, I don't see a pastor of passivity. I see unction, zeal, passion. I got a quote here in a little bit for you that's also going to 
further illustrate that. So why don't so why don't we give then? So like why do we care more about entertainment and the way people see me versus hospitality and the way that I see God and I get to share that with other people? The second point then is this hindrance to hospitality. Hindrance to hospitality. Subpoint expecting to give. The reality is this, it's not really rocket science, church. Like why we don't model hospitality. If you don't have an expectation to give, you're not going to be hospitable. It's pretty bottom shelf if you think about it, right? Like if I don't expect to serve you well and love you well because I've been served and loved well in Christ, like why would I model that for you? It's no expectation. It's not a rhythm. It's not in the schedule. So the primary problem with your hospitality is not your resources. It's your understanding of what Jesus has first done for you. Like, we have enough resources in this room to accomplish the goal, that this little financial goal we have, seven times over. Not counting the last gathering, not counting everyone who watches online, and all the people that won't show up today. Just in this room alone. It should be easy for us. The primary problem with hospitality is not resources, then. It's a failure to prepare, to, prepare, to set in the presence of God. I'll show you how I got there. Verse 3 says this. But I'm sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, prepared, as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, that's prepared, we would be humiliated. To say nothing of you, he says, it's not your fault. We would be humiliated for being so confident. And so there's an expectation here that the Apostle Paul has through the Corinthian church that they would, in fact, follow through. Again, loving God's word, I love the word of God, because it's so realistic and genuine. Like the Apostle Paul is just straight loving with them here. He's like, hey, here's the deal, gang. Like, I'm going to send these dudes ahead of me to make sure that the gift that you promised is prepared. Because if you, didn't, if you don't actually prepare that promise, it's going to be really, really awkward when they show up and there's nothing there to be given to them. Like, that is so real and realistic. He's saying it would be embarrassing. It would be humiliating. I would be humiliated. This isn't your fault. He's saying, no, no, no. It's my fault. I've been boasting in you, about you to them. I've been boasting about them to you. I've kind of set this whole thing up. It should be exciting and fun. And and if they come and they have to go all the way to your church in Corinth in the region of Achaia, and it's not ready, it's going to be weird. And think about that. Wouldn't that be weird? Right? They show up this impoverished people who's experiencing incredible amount of persecution. They don't fly. They don't ride. They're walking miles and miles and miles to get this gift. They get there, and then the church is like, well, this is a little awkward. (laughs) I don't know what to do with my hands. Like, I don't know what happened here, but we missed the memo on this. They don't shoot emails and text messages, right? They're writing on scrolls and sending things out to people. He's saying, no, no, no. Like, we have to be ready. It's not that he doesn't trust, that Paul doesn't trust the church. He's saying, I want this to be ready. This is an incredible reality for what hospitality looks like, right? Whenever we started the capital campaign, I invited 28 families to give first before I ever invited the rest of the body to give, right? That's a picture of preparedness. It's a picture of hospitality. It was us as leaders coming together, 28 families, and we said, hey, we're willing to pledge. And then they pledged 55%. They pledged 377000 of the $675,000. That was done with intentionality from the scriptures. Hey, Paul said, let's get this thing ready. And so also we said, hey, let's get this thing ready. Let's model this hospitality. Now, tell me it wouldn't be really awkward if in two weeks I forget. I didn't, put the, didn't have Jeff prepare a slide to put up there for you all and let you know when we were doing pledge cards. And I get up and I'm like, where are the pledge cards, leaders? And they're like, well, you didn't... Uh, 
prepare us. How uncomfortable would Corey feel in that moment? I'd be like, dude, this is so uncomfortable. This is so awkward. That's what Paul is saying here. He's saying to say nothing of you, but my confidence has actually brought me shame. My boasting has brought me some level of shame. I don't want them to think I'm not prepared. I don't want them to think we are not prepared as a church body. We're going to camp in this, and I'm going to put you in a corner here for a bit. So, This is a beautiful picture of hospitality. Um, it's also a beautiful picture of just being ready in general, general, or what I like to call, I don't know if this is a word, gospel preparedness. If you're a note taker, good luck. Uh, it's gospel hyphen preparedness is the way that I've written it down. The primary reason uh, that Christians are not hospitable, as I said earlier, is because they don't take time to actually prepare the king's resources to be used for hospitable reasons. Or you don't take the time to do the work. Recall the big idea with me. If entertainment is about what I can do for you and hospitality is about what God has done for me, tell me that you can look at the cross and the resurrection, the sending of the Holy Spirit, the birthing of the church, the, inc- the incredible movement of the early church that has exploded into something greater than we've ever seen. You can look at all these things happen in history and go, I don't think God was actually ready for that. I don't think God took the time to, to make that happen, to fabricate that sort of thing. I don't think God knew exactly what was going to No, you look at that and you go, my God, he's incredible. Look at all of the things that he's prepared for me. I mean, how many times in the New Testament does Jesus say, it's not yet my hour? It's not yet my hour. It's not yet my hour. It's not my final hour. And then he says, my hour has come. Why would he say that? Because he's been preparing for the cross. Everything that has happened from Genesis 3 all the way through into the New Testament is an evidence of God preparing his people, redeeming his people, pointing his people to a Messiah. There is gospel preparedness that has taken place. God has been ready for us. Hope you can see that in the scriptures. Now, to make that relevant for us here in light of this capital campaign in this series, we've passed out this decision guide. And here's what I know. There have already been people that have come to me and said, Corey, we got our number, man. We're excited to give. And praise the Lord for their heart behind that. And my question to them every time has been, did you read the decision guide? And they go, no. And then I say, well, how did you come to the conclusion of how much you were going to give? Did you pray about it? Well, no, we didn't really pray about it. So you just plucked it out of the air. And what happens in that moment is that that individual or individuals have taken reason and logic and emotion and experience to make their decision, but they've not prepared themselves in the gospel. Does that make sense? That is, the guide is set up for you to spend time in prayer, to spend time in God's word, to do it together as a family, to actually look at a budget. And then there lies the problem that we're going to get into here in a second. There are two immediate reasons why Christians will pluck a number out of the air or fail to be hospitable in general. And this is for professing Christians in the room. There's two reasons. The first reason is this. You still see God's resources as your resources, primarily. And that's not the case. That is not the case. The second reason is you don't want to be confronted with your sin. So we'll hit that one in a second. The first one, though, you still see God's resources as your Resources. I use this as an illustration uh, in the first service. It was not in my notes, so bear with me. So let's picture Corey dies. Boom, dead. Congratulations. You guys got what you wanted. So I'm off, okay? Jesus, or not Jesus, sorry. Andrea now is stuck by herself with three kids. Sorry, babe. My nine year old's in here. And 
And I have a will, right? And everything's written up and the, everything that should be happening has been given over to an attorney to manage the estate. My wife is distraught. Kids are trying to figure out stuff. And then the attorney takes the will, takes all the access to all the finances and then just does whatever he or she wants to do with it. How would you respond? You'd be like, your inner lawyer in that moment would be like, I object. Like, what about their kids? What about college? What about longevity? What about legacy? What about all these things? You don't have the, you don't have the right to do that. He's not here. He left the will. He told you what to do with the finances, how you're supposed to manage it, and all these things that he wanted. And you, your inner lawyer would be like, that's not right. And yet, here we go. Jesus has died, resurrected, went to the kingdom, left us his will, and we see fit to just manage his resources however we want. We're no different in this scenario, and yet our inner lawyer rarely says, I object. Yeah? I'm going to back you further into a corner. The second reason that you don't want to see that is because you don't want to be confronted with your sin. The decision guide that we've given is designed to do a job, and that job is to expose sin. Right? That, that's all we're trying to do within the capital campaign is preach Jesus, expose sin, and reveal the need for him. It's going to point out scriptures. It's going to call for a time in prayer, and it's going to cause you and call you to look at a budget. More than likely, because you're American citizens, you don't have a budget. You wonder why your life is so anxious and chaotic? Why you feel a little out of sorts at times? You want to know that one of the number one reasons you argue in marriage is because you don't have a what? It's just statistical. You don't, you're, not, you're not calling yourself out. I just assume you're struggling to have this conversation. The number one reasons marriages fail is financial reasons. It's not that they don't have finances. It's that they don't know how to talk about it. So why would we let that happen in our household? If it's a statistical probability. Let me be clear, abundantly clear here. If you're a professing Christian and you don't have a budget, you're in sin. That's a sin, dude. Like, how are you just going to manage the king's resources however you see fit while you're not engaging him in his word and engaging him in prayer, not going to, to Christian community to talk about it? It is most certainly a sin, right? What if, okay, let's, let me give you some, I'll back you out, I'll call you out a little bit, I'll give you some humor. Imagine that we go to our annual covenant member meeting in October that we have, super fun, we party like rock stars in that joint, it's a blast, and, and instead of giving you a very detailed budget that I pass out every year that Jeff and the team work on for us, they pass it all out, it's multiple pages, multiple pages line by line, has everything about our church body in there. Instead of doing that, I just got out the whiteboard and I wrote 555 thousand dollars and circled it and I said vote on that let's vote on the budget how many of you be like yeah that sounds great the majority be like that's my money what are you doing with our money you're going to go to kids like we give away almost a hundred thousand dollars at global missions in the last year where does that money go how much are you guys getting paid like what what's happening here you would be like I object no that's mine and yet the reality of it is this it's not yours it's the king's we don't write a budget because we're scared of you. We write a budget because we're scared of him. We got to stand before him one day and say, Lord, this is how I manage your money. We have to answer for every dollar, every coffee that Jeff buys. He's got to answer for that one day. Every coffee that I have to buy, we have to answer for that one day. There's a reality, right, where, he's gonna, where we have to stand before the king one day, and he's going to say, what did you do with my resources? I told you how to manage it. What did you do with it? Give me an account. We're going to have to give an account. And so are you. The reality is, is this, that, that thought that if you showed up that night and I circled that, and I said, let's vote on it. You said, no, that's mine. What that reveals in that moment is that you believe God's resources are, in fact, yours. But they're not. 
They're his resources, not to be handled flippantly. You don't just give everything you have. That's called a poverty gospel. That's nonsense. Jesus did that, so you don't have to do that. We would never teach that. Right? It's also not a prosperity gospel. If you give more, God gives you more. That's nonsense. That's also not true. You can give everything you own and get pancreatic cancer tomorrow. You have no idea. You have no idea. We're just called to stick to the gospel itself. Now, the reality is because there is no preparedness on the Christian's part, there is no hospitality. But you cannot look at the cross of Christ, the resurrection, the sending of the Spirit, the birth of the church, and say, I'm modeling what he modeled for me. Right? So get organized. If you do not have a budget, we have lots of opportunities for you to identify a budget. You've heard of prayer warriors? Yeah? We have legit financial warriors in our church. They do tons of teaching on this stuff, giving generously. They sit with people on hours and hours on end, and they help figure this stuff out. If you have not done it, let me encourage you to do it. Just reach out to me. There's a preparation that has to take place. Paul is saying, I want, them, I want the whole church to be prepared, lest shame be brought upon me. Gospel preparedness. Lastly, then we see there's an honor in hospitality. There's an honor in hospitality. I'll show you this. Verse 5. He said, so I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised. That's what he's saying the same thing again from verse 4. So that it may be ready as a, what? a willing gift, not as an exaction. And so exaction is an interesting word for them to use to explain the Greek and the ESV. But what he's saying is this. I want this gift to be ready. And then the similar word in the Greek would be not as something covetousness, not as something that would lead you to covet. So in normal English, what Paul is saying is this. I want you to be excited about this. He said last week, I want you to want to give. This week, he's saying the same thing. I want you to want to give this. I don't want you to give with a covetous heart. I don't want you to give with a heart of greed. I don't want you to give because you think you're going to get something more, for you can get nothing more. It's already all been given to you in Christ. You're not going to achieve anything else. You have been redeemed. He's talking to a church that has been redeemed called Corinth. And he's saying, I want you to want to do this. I want you to model what it looks like to simply be in Christ. And from that, I gather this. There is honor in representing Christ, church. Like it's, it's an honor to get to model the same things that Jesus has modeled to redeem me. Right? Whenever I get to look at the, the cross of Christ and I see mercy and grace and surrender and sacrifice, like it's an honor to get to see those things. Think about this. It's Mother's Day. Let me talk to the ladies for just a minute, if I may. Ladies in general, not just moms. Ladies, could you tell me something more attractive than what I just said in a man? Men, you better listen up. Think about this for just a minute, ladies. Like, can you imagine a man who is selfless, a man who's sacrificial, a man who's full of mercy, full of grace, full of, forgi- full of forgiveness, full of unction, full of zeal, full of passion, full of desire, full of living his life to the point of death for you? Can you find me any definition or any description that would be more attractive than that thing? Show me something, anything, nothing. Your silence tells me nothing. Yeah? Men, that's what you should aspire to, by the way. Right? And it is an honor to get to walk that out as men and women alike. When I get to look at the cross, I see all these characteristics in Christ. And then I, as his ambassador, Paul calls me elsewhere in the gospel, we get to walk that out. All those character traits for people. Tell me what the world would look like if the church actually modeled being Christ church. There's an honor in walking this thing out. I was with my uh, nephew this week. Let me wrap this up. I was with my nephew this week helping him buy a car. He's going to be moving here 
for the summer. You guys are going to have to help me with him. He's a real good-looking dude, and he's going to bring some problems. And so his name's Dathan. I call him Day. He calls me Unc. I'm his uncle. Uh, and so he's hanging out, you know, and we're buying this car together. And he's asking me questions about other religions, really good, really great uh, questions. So I'm explaining to him, like, every other religion just wants you to look inside of yourself, wants you to find yourself, find the light inside of you. It doesn't matter if it's Buddhism, Hinduism, whenever yoga becomes a spirituality, it becomes yogi, and it's transcendental meditation, and it's like, clear your mind, don't think about anything else, just think about what's happening inside of here, what's going on inside of here. And we're talking about all these different religions. We have two and a half hours in the car. And so then I, I said to him, I said, so logically, you know, Day, does that, does that make sense to look inside yourself? And he's like, I don't know. And I said, well, uh, he's 18. Keep in mind when I'm telling you this. I said, well, bro, who has lied to you more than you've lied to yourself in 18 years? And in 18, he said, well, me. No one. No one's lied to me more than I've lied to me. I said, okay, well, at 18, bro, who has let you down more than you've let yourself down? Now, keep in mind, he's a pretty competitive athlete. And he was like, well, no one's let me down more than I've let myself down. I said, okay. So, like, what do you hear me say when I say all these other religions are telling you to look to you? And he goes, well, like, if I've lied to myself and I've let myself down the most, like, they're telling me to look to myself to be a savior. I said, logically, how would that go for you? He's like, pretty bad, hunk. I was like, yeah, pretty bad, bro. Like, it ain't rocket science. Like, every other religion in the world is telling you, you can do this, you can measure up, you can achieve, you can entertain, is what they're saying. It's all about you, it's all about what you provide, it's all about your goodness. That's entertainment, church. Hospitality. Like, Christianity is the only one that says, no, you were bought by the blood of Christ. Look at who he is. The hospitality flows from the cross of Christ, and it just continues to flow and flow and flow. He was rich and became poor so that you who are poor might become rich. That's the premise of everything that Paul is saying. There's nothing about that that's entertaining, but there is everything about that that is hospitable. And so this is what he's calling us to do. Here's a final quote I have for you. Charles Spurgeon, Prince of Preachers, 1914. He shared this to his congregation, and then we'll be done. Team, y'all can come back up here and get settled. Charles Spurgeon said this, If anything could make a man zealous in his cause, it would be to see it, that's his cause, it would be to see his cause stained with the best blood on earth, to see it stained with his own son's blood. Surely a man would say, I consecrate myself over the blood of my child to live and to die, to honor the name that was thus put to shame for my purpose and for my design. And God says the same. The zeal of God burned at Calvary. He's not saying the zeal of God burned away. He's saying, no, 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 the zeal of God. Whenever Jesus went to the cross, hospitality did not go away. It just increased as redemption is flood throughout history from going from 20,000 to millions and millions of Christians in less than 80 years. Nothing like that's ever happened in the history of humanity. It's crazy. He's saying the zeal of Christ burned at the cross. And then we know it biblically, like he dies and he resurrects. And then he does what? He sends us the Holy Spirit. Boom, fills us up. New life is given to us. As if that were not enough. He then goes on to do what? Does Jesus retire and go to Florida? Now there's no retirement in the Bible. He doesn't do that. What does he do? He goes to his kingdom. What is he doing? Preparing a what? Preparing a kingdom. He's preparing a place. He's preparing a house. There's all this 
forth knowledge that has been placed into him coming back to collect the saints. Hospitality does not go away in the cross. Rather, the, the zeal, the passion of Christ is propelled in the cross and advances out through history. We get to model that same zeal, that same passion through being hospitable. We get to look and say, man, this is all that you've done for me. Now I get to be your ambassador. And I get to go model these things for other people and just watch the gospel change people's lives. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together for communion. Every week together, as a family, we take communion. And so if you're unable to grab a communion cup, they're up here in the baskets. Uh, on either side of the stage, you can make your way up there. Grab that communion basket. Uh, grab the, the piece of communion for you out of that basket, rather. Let me read you, before you start opening up all your packages, let me read you from 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, the Apostle Paul, to the same church, uh, says this. We read it every week. Hopefully you have it memorized by now. He said, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so communion for us is not, we say this every week, it's not a religious event, it's a redemptive event. Communion is uh, the, one of the most beautiful pictures of hospitality. And so as you hold the elements in your hand, you see the bread that's about to be broken by you, and that same bread representing Christ's body broken for you. And then you see the cup, which represents Christ's blood that was spilled in your place as your substitute. It is a picture of hospitality. And what you get to do is you get to ingest that in. As you take that communion in, it begins to form and reform you. Nothing special about the communion, but it tells the story of the gospel. And as that hospitality goes in, you're reminded, this is what he did for me. Now also, I get to go and do this for others. And so for those of you that are saints, when you're ready, feel free to take any